This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. This episode is brought to you by Genesis Aerosystems, a Moog company and leading provider of autopilots for rotor and fixed-wing aircraft. The Genesis STEC 3100 Digital Autopilot provides increased safety, decreased pilot workload, and is approved for over 200 makes and models. To learn more about the STEC 3100, visit genesis-aerosystems.com. That's genesis-aerosystems.com. That's when I ran into a cloud. And when I hit that cloud, it jolted the airplane. I hit my head on the canopy. I had a big thrust up and then let down. And when that happened, the entire electrical panel and the lights that were displayed in the aircraft went dark. Welcome to another edition of There I Was, a podcast where we put you in the cockpit with pilots in interesting situations and we learn how they flew out of them. I'm your host, Richard McSpadden. Today's guest is Robert Clark. Rob's been a GA pilot for over 25 years. He started flying at age 17, got his license at age 19 flying a 152 out of Ray's Flying Service in Houston, Texas. Rob's got about 500 total hours. Rob also owns a Belanca Viking and a Dyke Delta. He's currently the director of sales for Lance Air, and today he's going to share an event with us where he flew VFR into IMC and survived to tell about it. Rob, welcome to the show. Thank you. Set the tail up for us, if you don't mind. Uh, where were you headed? What were you flying? Let's get into the story. It's uh, so interesting to talk to somebody that has uh, flown out of one of these, and your story in particular is pretty compelling. Absolutely. So to set the story right is that I recently made an acquisition of the Dyke Delta. The builder, Tom Bauer, lived in Sebastian, Florida, and that's on the east coast of Florida, just a little bit north of Fort Lauderdale. We had been talking with Tom, and we came to an agreement, and we set up some dates, and I flew out there to not only complete the sale by getting familiar with the airplane and finding out all of it, I spent about almost two weeks with Tom there, just going over everything there is to know about this unusual little plane called the Dyke Delta. And Tom was very gracious to host me and have me there uh, and teach me everything that he knew about it before actually selling me the aircraft. But this trip begins there, and it ends with this story. So we're picking up a brand new airplane that we're kind of unfamiliar with. We've got some training in it. Now, Robert, you're saying we. Was there somebody flying with you through this, or were you solo? Oh, no, I'm sorry. You have to correct me. I do use we sometimes, but I am flying solo. Okay. But there was some ground training. You know, when I picked up the aircraft, we, as in Tom Bauer and I, Tom taught me everything that he knew to fly this airplane safely, 
to operate it safely, so we spent extensive time going over everything about the airplane. Since I was planning to fly it back, and with that, that's where we actually begin our story, is making a cross-country flight from Florida to Houston, Texas, in the Dyke Delta. And so that's where I'm going. And I've been with Tom a few weeks, and it's uh, part of the story that every pilot can tell is we get this uh, get-home-itis, and we feel like, oh, it's time to get home, and we've got to complete a mission, and that's kind of what gets us into this mess. So you spend some time with the airplane, you're getting checked out, you are checked out in the airplane, and, and it's time to launch. So um, going from Vero Beach or from that part of Florida up to Houston, pretty long flight. So you were expecting to do that over a couple of days? You were trying to do it all in one day, or how did that, how'd your trip planning come about? I did plan to do it all in one day. A uh, flight plan would take anywhere from six to seven hours to make the journey. It would take some fuel stops along the way. It wasn't a one-hop type flight plan. Very acute to what the weather was doing. It was a a beautiful VFR situation across the United States. Uh, There was a few cloud buildups around Florida, but nothing that was uh, anywhere near IFR conditions. Although that changed dramatically on a long flight that, you know, not keeping up with the weather accurately is also one of the situations we encountered here. So we planned the flight to go from Vero Beach, which is where I departed out of, up to Cross City, which is about in the top middle portion of Florida. And then we crossed over all the way to Pensacola. And on my my second leg of the trip, stopped, refueled a little oil, checked everything out, and then took off for Houston. And so we started the flight actually in the a.m. of that day. I think I have left Vero Beach finally right about 8, well, it was actually about 9.30 or 10 o'clock. I can't remember the time uh, I actually took off. Mm -hmm. But with each stop, I would stop and take a break because it was a, you know, it's a new airplane. I'm getting used to it. I'm trained in it, qualified in it. But, you know, it's still something new. So we're still flushing out some of the details. So each stop, I stopped at Cross City to refuel It's a thorough check over to make sure everything's working right. And it's also a time to kind of relax, plan the next jump safely, and move on. Yeah, and and what a great adventure. One of those general aviation adventures uh, that's so much joy. You bought this airplane. It's your airplane. And now you get to fly it, you know, almost halfway across the country. Just a lot of excitement in that kind of adventure. And so I imagine a little nervousness, a new airplane and all that you bought. And, but so far, so good, right? When you get to Tallahassee or then eventually to Pensacola, I think you said, and flying out of Pensacola, is that where the trouble begins? No, the uh, flying out of Pensacola is just fine. And keep in mind, through all these flights, there's a couple of rules that I, I fly with. Number one, I always carry four flight with me. I'm a four flight user, so I have an ADSB Stratus 2 with me, an iPad. And I'm always also flying with flight following. Even if your VFR requests flight following is one of the best, and in this case, one of the absolute saving graces of this flight. The trouble actually began well into the flight from Pensacola when we're actually crossing over the Texas-Louisiana border. 
And by this time, I had been in the air for well over six hours. I was a little tired, a little fatigued out at that time, but the weather was so beautiful. I was riding just above this scattered layer that was starting to develop over the east side of Texas there, over the Beaumont area. About how high were you, Robert? Throughout this portion of flight, I had taken this flight at 4,500. Okay. And I had planned to actually fly all the way home, which is on the west side of Houston at David Wayne Hooks Airport. And that's on the northwest side. So I have transitioned Houston airspace. It's very, it's a class Bravo airspace. It's very large. <laughs> and if you're not on flight following, it's sometimes hard to get approval to get into it. But if you're on flight following, they're expecting you. It's much easier. And I had planned to cross through the airspace and actually climb up to about 10,000. So when I entered the state of Texas over the border of the, the Mississippi, I had started a gradual climb up to uh, 6,500. And my goal there was to keep climbing up to as high as I can because I was planning to cross right over Intercontinental or be somewhere near there as David Wayne Hooks is right on the other side of Intercontinental from the direction I'm headed. So the weather's nice. It is getting dark. The sunset is going down. It's getting dark. And although I had planned to make it all the way home, I had an alternate destination. And that alternate destination was following short of my destination on the east side of Houston, known as Liberty Airport. It's T-78 on the map. And Liberty had a long enough runway that I could use for my aircraft that I was flying. Since it's something new, I didn't want to choose a short airfield. I, I chose something long. And so as the flight progressed, the sun was going down. It disappeared below the horizon. I could see nothing but a blanket of clouds out there as in a scattered layer, not broken and not overcast at this time. But that changed quickly as that became night. As I flew from Beaumont in that condition and made it just an, about another, I would say, 50 miles in, I'm right over Liberty Airport. And I remember looking down at that airport and I could see the outline of the airport, I could see the runways, and I kept my little voice in my head that you should never ignore says, Rob, why don't you go and land there? You're tired. You should just divert. Go ahead, spend the night there, you know? There's no rush to get home. But of course, the other side of me was a little fatigued out, and I wanted to get home, and I had get homeitis. And so the other side, I kept flying on. Right. It's the side that says, oh, it sure would be nice to make it all the way home and put the airplane in my own hangar and jump in the car and go home and be done, be completely finished. We've all felt that tug. And to the point that you're leading us to, I think it can lead you into making some tough decisions. It does. It absolutely does. So in this situation, we had just passed Liberty. We're at 6,500 and everything has gone pretty well dark outside. Now I can still see lights, uh, ground lights and so forth. What I did not notice in, as I was flying along was there was a huge black void that I, I totally missed that was dead set in front of me and actually a little bit to the north. And it was a, a cumulus that had built up just in a matter of minutes. And you were running with uh, ForeFlight and with Stratus which would give you uh, weather and uh, carbon monoxide protection. I, I do the same thing. I, I love that combination. I have the same thing in my Navion. 
but it the weather wasn't showing up on your foreflight? That's correct. Now, this is a hard part where I can't remember the, the actual truth, but it's the honest truth. I don't remember if I actually had the weather turned on or sometimes I've noticed, and I've flown many flights across Texas, where weather can develop so fast, remember that your radar on your foreflight can be delayed up to uh, as well as 14 minutes ago. You can see those delays. That's kind of a known issue. It's just an advisory that your NOAA radar that is sending out the, the signal that is being translated through all the WAS towers and up to your receiver is delayed, and it's not actual real-time. And many pilots that are unfamiliar with that can mistake it for real-time weather and wind up in these situations. Yeah, and that's that's happened in a couple of tragic incidents where people were trying to skirt around or in between thunderstorms and not realizing there is a delay in the system. It can be up to 14 minutes long. It can be shorter than that, but you have to expect that uh, it's a longer delay. And then if it's better than that, then, then great. Uh, but you have to plan on the fact that you've got more delay in there. And it didn't take much cross-country flying for you to fly with that and, and compare what you're seeing on your iPad to what you're seeing outside to realize that, um, you know, there's, there's a difference there. And, and it also measures uh, precipitation, right? So if precipitation isn't heavy enough, I've noticed sometimes where you can get into, into some clouds situations where uh, it's not showing up on your, your for flight or on your, uh, your map, your, your EFB at all. And so um, it's a great tool. It's a, been a tremendous safety advantage, but it's not foolproof. Absolutely. It's not foolproof. And, and I was the fool in this situation because I didn't see it. Also, I'll make a note on this night, there was no moon. The, mm. the moon wasn't out yet, or it was a dark, dark night. I didn't have uh, very, very many little stars above, and I had a little bit of, of ground light when I, I crossed over Liberty Airport. But at the, like I said, at that time, I'm about right about the 6,500 foot level, and the airplane is not equipped for IFR flight. It's a VFR only uh, type situation, and a lot of the instrumentation is electronic, meaning turn coordinators, electronic, and so forth. But we'll get into that. But just about five miles west after uh, of Liberty Airport, after crossing it, that's when I ran into a cloud. And when I hit that cloud, it jolted the airplane. I hit my head on the canopy. I had a big thrust up and then let down. Um, It happened quite suddenly. And when that happened, the entire electrical panel and and the lights that were displayed in the aircraft went dark. Now, the engine's still running, and the view outside the window is nothing. It's just pure blackness. And all I can remember from that time is I'm running with uh, the glow of my iPad that's now shifted to the floor. And the glow of the iPad is the only thing illuminating the cockpit. And a part of that is um, good that I can partially see what's going on, but I can't make out any of the instruments. But it's good to know that I could still see that ForeFlight was, was up and running only in the map mode. I did not have the AHARS turned on at this time. And for our listeners, AHERS is Attitude Heading Reference System, a capability that's offered in ForeFlight for basic attitude, airspeed, and altitude information. And so, of course, I, I remain calm as a pilot. I'm like, okay, well, obviously this has got to be a small cloud, and I'll just punch out the other side. All I have to do is not really move that control yoke, or 
and the delta it's a stick so i try not to budget at all and i fly for about 30 more seconds maybe more maybe a little bit less it's it's hard to you know kind of gauge time when that happens but i assume there was about a 30 second of just flying along thinking all right i'm going to punch out of this cloud any moment now and that just didn't happen what did happen though is the wind outside of the the canopy started to get really loud and a little brain in my voice rushes all the way back to my early years of of flying and reading magazines like EAA experimental and AOPA and reading about the articles that were written in the back of those magazines and there was one article that I read where that was a issue to a pilot was he did the same thing ran into a cloud and all of a sudden everything got really loud in the airplane it also reverted me back to a part of my flight training as a young student where my instructor who uh, was Colonel Ray Andrews he is a retired Air Force and own Ray's flight service he put me through some I thought unusual training programs but he had me fly with my eyes closed and just listen and I would be able to tell him if I was in a dive or if uh, the sound went away, then I was in a climb and, and so forth. When all this came rushing back to my brain, I'm in a dark cockpit and the air's whistling outside that cockpit and I know I'm in the wrong position. And the words to myself were, Robert, this is the way pilots die. You've read about this. This is not where you want to be. And so I started moving the control stick to make the sound go away. And that was really my only reference at a time of being an immediate reaction to that that situation. Because you're still in the dark. The only thing you had was an iPad that's kind of illuminating your cockpit a little bit. And that's the only visibility you have. You're not able to see your instruments and you don't have many available to you anyway, right? That's right. At that moment, I do recognize that, you know, hey, we've got to find straight and level. And so I did reach down to the floor of the, the aircraft and straightened out the iPad oriented to me and hit the AHARS uh, wheel at the top of the screen. Now, <laughs> the other part is uh, my iPad is a Gen 2, and so it's reacting a bit slow. The Gen 2, to pull up AHAR, sometimes will take an additional 30 to 40 seconds before it pops up. And so I have to endure a little bit more time flying in the darkness here as the iPad is trying to show me what the electronic AHARs and the Stratus is uh, telling it. And during this time, my job to fly the airplane is to keep the noise down. And I look back at my flight track, and that's what I had I'd shared with you, is the flight track saw elevation swings from uh, about 6,200 feet all the way down to 1,400 feet, and then back up to, I believe it was uh, 3,000 feet. So at this time, I was all over the place. The flight path that you showed us is pretty remarkable in how erratic it is and how meandering it is that you were able to fly through this. So 
Meanwhile, you're trying to get your iPad to come up so you can get the AHERS information. And how much time would you say has elapsed if you just had to guess, Robert, that you were in the clouds? Had you been in it maybe a minute at this point or, or longer? It felt like forever that first minute. But I will tell you two things that I did at approximately the 30-second mark. And I wasn't keeping time. This is all from my recollection. Number one, when you're in that situation, your inner ear is telling you that you're straight and normal. But certain signs, like the wind outside the canopy, are telling you something's different. Because you don't feel it physically on your body. But I was meandering. I was uh, turning left and right. I was descending and climbing when I would correct, basically going into a yo-yo situation. So when I decided to, hey, we're in a dangerous situation now, I not only hit the AHARS button, but at the same time, right after I hit the AHARS to bring that up, I notified ATC. ATC is with me the whole way. I'm on flight following. So I was one click away from a helpful hand. And I notified ATC as soon as I could, and I simply told them, Houston Approach, November 1261 Bravo, VFR, and IMC. And I let go. With that one sentence being said, that controller dropped everything else that he was doing and focused on me to help me get out. And, of course, they have a standard spiel. They want to know. They want you to ident, and they want you to state what your situation is. They want you to tell them how many souls on board and what do you want to do. And so uh, he started communicating with me. And, of course, I couldn't really see what direction I was heading. The iPad kind of locked up at that moment when he's trying to say, okay, uh, I didn't. Give me your altitude. And, and so when I did that, he knew where I was. He knew my altitude. And he comes back and says, you know, what can I help you with? And I said, I would like radar vectors back to Liberty, T-78. Since I had just passed it, and, and I knew I was sitting there thinking in the back of my brain, I had just passed this airport, and I'm doing about three miles per minute. So I'm sitting there adding up how many miles I'm away now that I can't really see. My iPad's locked up at this point, hasn't come back to life. And I'm trying to tell the ATC that, hey, I, wanna, I just want to turn around and, and go right back. In my brain, I'm thinking that I was kind of straight and level. I think I was maybe off course 30 degrees to the left and right. But in truth, my course had actually almost reversed itself without me really knowing about it. And so during that first 30 seconds, the two good things that I did were hit the AHARS button on the foreflight. And I think one of the number one things is contact ATC immediately, let them know I'm in trouble. Yeah, I would agree that that's a, a good move on your part. Seen that too many times we're listening to tapes. I, I wish the pilot would have just fessed up that they're in trouble. ATC can really be an assisting hand to you in that kind of situation. It sounds like they were for you. And so I also want to stress, Robert, for our listeners here, that what you're describing is why I'm convinced that we have this VFR and IMC situation that continues to occur it's tough for pilots to realize just how disorienting it is when you fly into the clouds and lose your reference. And your inner ear is giving you false information about your orientation. It gets deceived very quickly when it doesn't have the visual context to add to what's going on inside your, your inner ear. 
you can become very disoriented. And then once you get disoriented, it's extremely hard to get that back, even if you have visual context and even if you have the training to use your instruments. It's still very demanding to get your orientation back and then to trust your instruments and fly in spite of that feeling in the seat of your pants. Because if you're a VFR pilot, you're really taught that. You're taught to fly seat of the pants. What does it feel like? And now your feelings are erroneous and they're dangerous, actually. And so I just wanted to pause and stress to pilots, especially VFR pilots, this is why this situation is so dangerous very difficult to overcome this and why your story to me was so compelling to actually talk to somebody who's been through this kind of a situation and somehow survived it. Absolutely. To pick up on where we're at in the story here is that we're about, you know, a minute after entering into the cloud and we've already contacted ATC and they're trying to get us out of the cloud. Except one problem. I don't know what's straight and level and I don't know which direction I'm going in. The little light on the compass on the dash of the JD-2 or the, the Dyke Delta, that lights out. So I can't even see the compass rows of the magnetic compass. And, of course, anybody says, well, pull out your phone and turn on your light. Well, <laughs> easier said than done is because, uh, yeah, I didn't have my, my phone readily available with me. It's one of the negatives about the flight. Not having a secondary backup uh, lighting system in, in the cockpit. So ATC is trying to direct me out. They're trying to give me a northbound heading just to get me out of the cloud or at least get me on a vector that they could see and I could under I could follow. The good news is we're about a minute into that cloud and the iPad comes up and it's functioning. And the AHARS says that I am 90 degree bank. I'm actually 92 degree bank. I'm a little bit over the 90 degrees. But importantly, until you saw that, you had no recognition that that's the level of bank you were in from your seat of the pants feel, right? That is correct. Absolutely none except for I had resolved back to the sound. But even mm -hmm. though the sound of the whistling meant my airspeed was slow, I was now turning back into another dive, right? So I'm, the airplane is turning to a point, you know, losing airspeed and turning back, rolling into a, another dive to in that uh, as I'm 90 degrees as any airplane would do if you just put it 90 degrees and kind of let go of the stick or center of the stick the nose will drop and you'll get into almost a corkscrew type situation but yes and no no indication physically that I was 90 degrees hey listeners do you love aviation did you know that general aviation contributes billions to the U.S. economy every year and is a vital pipeline for military and commercial pilot force. AOPA works to ensure the vitality of the general aviation industry and supports our freedom to fly. Join us and become a member now at AOPA.org. You'll become part of a worldwide community of aviation enthusiasts. We'd love to have you. Remind me, you mentioned that on your panel, you have an electronic attitude indicator is that right? Can you share with us what instruments do you have on the Dyke Delta there? Well, it was built in 1981, so the instrumentation was using just a few VFR standards. We have an electronic turn coordinator. We had a, a magnetic compass, of course. We had airspeed indicator uh, that's, you know, of course, running off the airspeed. We have somewhat of an attitude indicator. 
but I'm, I'm not sure if it was working correctly or not, but it seemed to, to be working all right when I departed, but it was everything was in off on the panel electrically. And I do feel that when I entered the cloud, something shorted out in the system. So you have some of that basic instrument there, but you don't have confidence in it. And that's another point to be made whenever you're flying in instruments or IMC. You have to have confidence in the instruments because they will be giving you contrary information to what you're feeling in the seat of your pants, as we discussed earlier, and the instruments are what will save your life. And so you have to have confidence in them because there'll be some times when you're doubting them and your training is the only thing that saves you to fly by the instruments, not to trust your seat of the pants. But you don't have your confidence in that. And also, your dash had kind of blacked out. It's dark. You don't have a flashlight, so you don't have good visibility on those instruments anyway. Is that part of the problem here? Yes, that's a major part of the problem. I actually tried picking up the iPad. You're trying to fly the airplane first, and then you're trying to pick up an iPad and and use the glow to see if you can see the instruments and what they're telling you. And, of course, when you're trying to do all this at the same time, I remember trying to, to look at the instrumentation using the glow of the iPad, but not really being able to interpret what it's saying or what it's indicating. And the whole time I remember, as much as time as I'm trying to put into that, I need to be focused on that sound outside. You know, I need to be focused on what I do know about the airplane. And that was kind of in between time before my iPad had come back to life from switching on the AHARS. Once I set the iPad down and gave it a few seconds, I, I didn't want to touch anything else on it, maybe accidentally touch something on the screen to ask it to do some other function that would delay that AHARS coming up. So I, I quickly put it back down on the floor and said, you know what, just let that come out. I was sitting there thinking, worst case scenario, I'll pop out of the bottom of the clouds. I know they were sitting around the 3,000 foot level. But I was wrong about that, too. That was the indication I had from way earlier in the flight, another 50 miles prior to this event. So the AHARS comes up. I'm sideways, 90 degrees. I use that to roll the airplane to the proper attitude. And at this time, you're right. You're trusting an instrument. Now, is it an official instrument? Well, that's debatable because I think that AHARS on the four-flight iPad was now my primary flight instrument, and I used it. Remember, I will use any technology <laughs> in the cockpit to save my life, and I think everybody should hold that rule. So with that, I was able to straighten out. Um, at this time, ATC is asking me to fly a heading, and they notice that I'm not responding very well to holding that heading. And I have to tell them that I'm regaining visibility on my primary flight instrument, I tell them I'm doing my best. And I finally get on that northbound heading. But more importantly, I'm able to hold wings level now. I'm able to, to stop turning left or right. Is it perfect? No. My iPad's a little sluggish, so I'm responding with about a two-second delay. And when I turn, and then it reacts, and then I turn again, it reacts. I'm just trying to make very small movements. It's one thing I did learn from doing some instrument training during my upcoming years is that, you know, when you're in the clouds, when, you, when you're limited, make very small inputs to your controls. And that's what I was doing, just taking little chunks at a time to level out, straighten out, and then head out, which means we were tuning to the heading that the ATC wanted to get me on. 
And so you're being vectored by ATC. You can maintain aircraft control now thanks to the uh, AHERS uh, capability that you've called up on your iPad. About what altitude are you? So at this stage in the flight, I had gone through an undulation of climbing up to a 6,500. During this moment of time, I descended all the way to 1,400 feet. Remember, no visibility outside all the way down to 1,400 feet then back up to uh, about 3,500 feet before I was able to straighten out and start that northbound course. So now I'm like, okay, now there's a chance for me. I've got ATC directing me. I've got a primary flight display that allows me to fly the airplane. And then now it's just about, okay, ATC is going to take me to Liberty. And that's exactly what he does. He takes me north for a few miles. He turns me easterly southeasterly and all the time he's giving me heading directions and i'm seeing that i'm following along he starts lowering my altitude and at this time my panel's dark but now i've i've finally reached over into my bag and grabbed my phone out of the bag that's sitting right behind me now that the aircraft is stable and i'm not so worried about it i can now turn on my iphone light and look at the altimeter and and make sure i get my altitude it's also displayed on the ahars that's true But I just wanted to be sure what I was seeing uh, on my altitude. So he was able to send me down. And at this point, I'm just getting anxious because I'm still in the cloud. I'm still dark. And I'm just using his reference for radar vectoring and giving me a heading to follow and an altitude to follow that were going to safely guide me back to the airport. He brings me in. And the next thing that I know is I lose comms with ATC. Luckily, there's a Southwest flight that relays comms between ATC and myself. And right about that time, I'm talking with the Southwest flight, relaying, okay, I'm flying this heading, we're at this altitude. And ATC informs the Southwest flight, okay, have them lower to, you know, 1,000 feet. And once I get to 1,000 feet, I start to see some ground lights. At 800 feet, I fully break out of the clouds and able to see the ground clearly. I'm clear of all clouds at 800 feet. And lo and behold, right in front of me, there are runway lights. I'm on a three-mile final. So kudos to ATC. He brought me in perfectly for a perfect setup approach. And it had started to rain. (laughs) So we were dealing with a little bit of rain um, as we made that final approach. There are no working lights. So there are no landing light uh, <laughs> to be used. So I'm, I'm landing in the dark. I don't even know if my nav lights are on at this time. But I made my approach visually into Liberty. As soon as I landed, of course, a little shaky. I pull off the runway. I shut down the airplane. And I instantly call approach and let him know, hey, I made it down okay. I was able to get through to that approach controller. And he goes, oh, I'm so glad you called me. He said, I went ahead and called the local fire department, so the parade's coming, but, (laughs) you know, I'm glad you called. I'm glad you made it down safely. The volunteer fire department came out, looked around, and they said, hey, we heard there was an airplane crashed out here. And I had to respond to them with a kind of a chuckle, and I said, nope, not anywhere around here. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, good news to report. There is no crash. Well, my, what, what a scary story that is, because people usually don't make it out to tell us the story. As you look back on it, Robert, what are your lessons learned coming through that, that you've t- 
tucked away in your experience now? I'm glad you asked because there are a number of lessons that, number of things that I did wrong, what I considered myself I did wrong, but there are a number of things that I did right. So the things that I did wrong is that, you know, I'm flying along in an unfamiliar aircraft, really, and I'm pushing myself in time and fatigue and wanting to get home. I'm asking probably more of the airplane than I should have, meaning that it's a very capable airplane. But have I flown it at night? No. Have I checked everything out to make sure that, you know, I had a flashlight at my availability for night flight? Did I have everything set up for night flight? No, I really didn't do that type of proper planning just to have all the equipment that I needed to make it more safe environment. And I know a lot of us are, well, it's just a few more minutes, we'll be there. So we keep pushing ourselves and the sun sets, and now you're in a completely different environment from day flying to night flying. And so that's some of the things that I feel I did wrong. The things I did right were uh, making sure I was on flight following with ATC, making sure I was one click away from help if I need it or an emergency. And the other thing is having a secondary device of flight navigation like ForeFlight in the cockpit with you and not relying solely on the aircraft instrumentation. If I had just that and not my ForeFlight iPad, I would have been in a grave situation, probably wouldn't have made it out because I would have never recovered from turning left and right and up and down until the point where it would have been too late. Keep in mind, this little airplane at cruise speed is doing 160 miles an hour on average. And as I retract some of my, my spaces, I, I do remember one of the things that I, I knew, you know, that's I'm used to traveling fast. I'm used to doing those kind of speeds or higher from the Blanca flying. But I do know the faster you go, the quicker you get into trouble. And as soon as I got into trouble in this flight, I do remember pulling back that throttle to midpoint so that I would not build up excessive speed in a dive. And let's say if I did not have those wonderful things like an iPad or flight following and I left that throttle full up, I would have popped out of a cloud base at 800 feet, possibly heading straight down. And that is not where you want to be in a very fast, you know, airplane. It's a different story if it's a Piper Cub. You could chop the power and just come to a nearly a complete halt, but um, definitely not where you want to be in this type of airplane. You've summarized some really good lessons learned about preparation for cross-country and, and the kind of flights you'd taken a new aircraft to you and preparation for night flying, having it sneak up on you kind of that it was dark and you really weren't prepared for that, but you were feeling good, so you pressed on ahead maybe not paying as much attention to, hmm, here comes these clouds coming in. Maybe that's going to change my whole decision factor and stepping back to take a look at that assessment. The thing I would also you know, suggest about the things you did right, aside from bringing along the uh, added equipment that you brought and being on flight following, is the reading that you did beforehand. You had mentioned to me in our conversations you felt like you could almost hear the narration of the Air Safety Institute through the years in your mind going through the scenario as it's happening to you. And so you're able to fly out of this in large part, Robert, because you had experienced this by reading about it and thinking about it, and you knew these symptoms when they came up about the increasing wind noise and all that. And so 
your consumption of safety information is uh, is a saving grace here that you took the time to do that. Absolutely. I'm glad you brought that point because, you know, as a kid, I'm not a big reader when I started my flying career at 17 and even hated <laughs> the parts that I had to read for getting my private pilot license. But here's really what did it, and here's the hats off to the guys that did it. I remember getting scrambling to the store, getting my EAA Experimental Aviation magazine. And one of the favorite things was the cartoon in the back, right? We've all enjoyed the cartoons in the back of that. There's one page that will outline the troubles of an experimental frustrated builder or something uh, to that nature. Two pages prior to that cartoon, there would be some great artistry on a page that would be related to these situations would be related to what did I learn? I learned this from that, or um, it's very similar. I don't remember what the articles were called, but it was that artistry that attracted me to that article. And then I started reading those and I did remember those situations. And it's, it's always kind of not so much of as a fascination or, or, Hey, I really want to learn from these, but it almost becomes like, Hey, I just don't want to end up like that guy. I don't want to be that pilot that ends up parked in the woods or dead. So I want to learn from these things. And that was a driving force. So every magazine I got, I would read those two things first before reading the cover article. (laughs) Yeah, good stuff. Well, I'm glad that you did that preparation. You never knew that you'd be in that situation one day, but you knew enough to just think about it, gain the experience that somebody else gained the hard way so that you're able to do it. And And now it's come full circle. You're doing this with us, and maybe someday somebody will be listening to this podcast, and it will prevent them from entering that same scenario. So I can't thank you enough for being willing to come forward and share your story with us and all that you did wrong and all that you did right and how you flew out of it. Thank you. I appreciate being here. Anything else to add, Robert, on that story or the lessons learned or any particular part of it? Yeah, you know, one of the big key factors here that I think uh, any pilot should do is make sure you listen to that inner voice that contradicts uh, if you're having a conflict in the cockpit. Always take the safest route. Unless you're flying some very important high-priority mission that is a life-or-death situation, listen to that little voice of safety that says, remember in the story I said, I looked down at Liberty and said, I should land there. I literally told myself that five minutes prior to entering the cloud. And if I had done that, I wouldn't have put myself at risk. I wouldn't have put my new airplane at risk. And I wouldn't have tried to become a statistic in a very bad way. So I think uh, every pilot can learn that there is usually no reason to press yourself so hard into a bad situation or an unknown situation or even a situation like mine where the conditions change. Yeah, and I I would add to that, that part of that rationalization that goes on in our mind is we think, well, if it gets too bad, I'll turn around. And you can get to a point, especially in flying in instruments and in weather, where you can no longer turn around, where you've gone in so deep that you've lost your ability to recover. And that's when things usually turn tragic. And I'm so glad that they didn't for you. Absolutely.
That's the kind of scenario that can just give you nightmares as a pilot. It's so difficult to survive a situation like Robert went through. I'm happy that he did, and I'm happy that he can share those lessons learned with us, the first being to avoid it entirely. To survive it is very rare. And the second is the fact that he spent a lot of time Once again, we know that people who consume safety information are safer pilots, and this is a good example of why and how that can be. And so uh, we're grateful he did that and that he shared his story with us. Thanks for listening. Alongside Tyler Pangborn, our producer, I'm Richard McSpadden, your host. Fly safe. Hey, listeners, if you like these podcasts and you'd like to help us continue providing them, please consider a donation to help our efforts. Go to aopafoundation.org slash donate. That's aopafoundation, all one word, dot org slash donate. And thanks for your support. There I Was is produced by the AOPA Air Safety Institute. If you'd like to hear other episodes, submit comments, or submit your own story to potentially be featured on the show, please visit airsafetyinstitute.org slash there I was. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.